podcast ain't played nobody your college football marriage of numbers and words special edition this is bill Connolly, and i am flying solo today because i have another special episode of the great sports city concept that i piloted last fall that i'm going to share with you here uh this time we are talking about miami i have a feature coming out next week about the university of miami and how will we know when the u is the u again and whatnot and while i was there i decided to get to know the city itself so Consider this officially after Oklahoma City's episode last fall. Consider this the second episode of Great Sports City. A hundred or so years ago, Miami was a city of less than 30,000 people, almost half of which were Bahamian immigrants or African-American laborers. It was basically a smaller Palm Springs, albeit one very much defined by the Jim Crow South. Like Los Angeles and a lot of other cities, it exploded in population in the 1920s, and by 1950, it was home to about 250,000 people uh, following a building boom and wartime investment. And that was even before the Cuban expats began to show up. Miami is a resort city that accidentally turned into a real city, in other words, uh, and eventually sport made its way into the landscape as well. It always does. The Dolphins came into existence in 1965, played mostly like a laughing stock for a few years, and then hired Don Shula away from Baltimore and became the most consistent franchise in the NFL. But after making the playoffs 21 times in 32 years, winning two Super Bowls, losing three others, uh, they've been to the playoffs just twice since, losing in the wild card round both times. After nearly canceling football, the University of Miami's football program began to mold itself into the U, capital T, capital U, under the irrepressibly gruff Howard Schnellberger in the late 1970s and early 1980s. The Canes won four national titles in nine seasons, briefly got wrecked by NCAA sanctions, and then ripped off four more top five finishes in a row at the turn of the century. They won the 2001 national title. Since 2003, though, zero top 10 finishes. The Heat came into existence in 1988, formed a death rivalry with the Knicks within a decade, then won three NBA titles in an eight-year span. They've basically been a 500 team since LeBron James left, though. The Marlins showed up in 1993, randomly won the World Series in 1997 and 2003, and haven't broken 500 this decade. The NHL's Panthers became a thing in 1993 as well, reaching the Stanley Cup Finals just three years later, getting swept, and making the playoffs just four times since. You can play pretend here really well. The Nevin Shapiro scandal proved that, as have basically every major sports team at one point or another. Uh, When you're good, you capture the imagination of a diverse, passionate region. And when you stink, you vanish from existence. You're probably going to stink for a while. But really, I mean, you can play pretend here as well. You can go over to South Beach. You can rent an exotic car or a boat. You can drink expensive drinks. You can live out the caricature that you've seen on television Or you can actually experience the city of Miami, not the facade. It is impossibly diverse with old, almost retro-looking neighborhoods to be explored along with all the generic stuff that you've seen on television. I spent four days in Miami this summer, and while I was there, I tried to learn about the great sports city behind the facade as well. I also tried to learn what Miami could teach us about a couple of the country's premier hot-button topics as well. To start, I spoke with Cam Underwood, head of SB Nation's State of the U, it's Hurricanes blog. Cam is a Midwestern transplant who now lives in Fort Lauderdale and will have to be dragged kicking and screaming from South Florida. We started our chat on the beach, but the rain pretty quickly forced us under an awning at a Cuban restaurant nearby. So for your money, 
uh, you know, I, the, I'm always interested in like the, uh, the heart of the city, who has the heart of the city. And uh, for your money, if uh, the Dolphins, the, hur- the Hurricanes, the Heat, the Marlins, if, they, if there was a chance that any of them could win uh, a title of some sort like this year or within the next couple of years, who would – a title for which team would improve the emotional – uh, just the the general emotional tenor of the city. Who 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 would have the the the, the biggest impact there? I think the answer is the Hurricanes, with a nod to the Marlins being second because okay. of the whole stadium situation, the ownership situation, selling off their players and things like that. So I think that if the Marlins were able to recapture what we saw in like ninety seven or three, I think that would be massive. But more than that, I think the Hurricanes because there's just such a connection to the city there's so many Miami natives on the team like it is just really the living breathing embodiment of Miami and that that alone is weird like you, that's not something you usually say about a college team um so I might like initially like my thought was maybe still the Dolphins had the edge here but I've heard hurricanes from a, a few people now um if you succeed at the University of Miami you're succeeding with Miami players almost undoubtedly uh, so there is a connection there, but it's still unique. Big cities don't usually have that kind of pull. But um, so, OK, so then, you know, now you've been here for not quite two decades. You've moved here and you said 2000. Yep. OK. Uh, from a place that doesn't have weather quite like this. Not at all. Um, Except for like maybe those five days a year, but like on a general not. Um, now, you know, I, I, nothing against Northerners. I know, at least with uh, Wisconsin, like they know how to treat even mediocre weather like the best weather of the year. And there's something uh, to be said about that. But well, let me start with this. What would it take to get you to leave? A lot of money, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> like a professional situation where uh, the paycheck is substantial. Honestly, that would probably be it because anything else that's like marginal to you know my compensation now I think is like why would I leave (laughs) you know it'd be a lateral move you know like why am I going to take that lateral move when I could like be here and have this weather and all this you know these uh fringe ancillary benefits and then of course at the same time the weather is it actually sort kind of sort of drove you out for a few days last year yeah yeah it was uh the hurricane uh, irma that was coming in it was the first time that i actually had evacuated for a storm since uh, i'd come down here and that's living through um katrina because katrina came east to west across florida before it went to the gulf oh, that's right uh that's living through hurricane wilma we're at my house um we did not have power for 15 days it's having lived through a couple other tropical storms and whatever but yeah i mean hurricane irma looked like a bad <laughs> thing so yeah i actually got out of dodge and went back to michigan which is where i'm from if you didn't know that for a while yeah no i um like i you you you, you said it earlier but i'd forgotten like it turned like it, it was supposed to be like there was massive doom in the forecast and it ended up only being bad as opposed to absolutely devastating true story um but there is that threat there i guess it's the price you pay anywhere you go with good weather is going to also have, uh, uh, well, okay, LA doesn't have this, but they got their own issues. Right, I but guess. they got, you know, earthquakes. So the right. earth, you know, the, the land moves and things like that. Yeah, so you don't get warning for that either. Right, exactly. You, you, it just pops up. Get out of town. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I thought it would be fun to do a, um, you know, if I'm calling this thing great sports city, then to go to the greatest sports city. Um, well, okay, no, but um, a city that has the, uh, you know, a reputation for um, trying to think of the right word. It's not exactly fair weather, but it's kind of fair weather mm-hmm. um, in that, yeah, well, okay. It, in LA, 
I, you know, I, I understand like places with nice weather, they have nice weather. You don't, you have to put yourself through crap if the team's not very good. And so you don't show up. Um, but beyond that, I like, you know, in your mind, even despite the weather and, and occasionally iffy crowds, like this is a good city for sports. This is a very good city for sports because people care. Um, and it's a thing that I've said before, and I know I said it when we were having lunch earlier, but, like, Miami is an event city. Mm-hmm. You know, so we get up for big events, like the Virginia Tech game last year against Miami, like the Notre Dame game last year against Miami. Like, those big, you know, the, when uh, LeBron was here with the Heat in, you know, the 2000, early 2010s. Um, for those events, the city is really going to come together. So, um, and people really care, and that's why when the teams are bad, there's such fodder for anger. You know, when, when Al Golden was running Miami into the ground, people were flying banners and not coming out because <laughs> the product was bad and it mattered because they care. So even though I know people are like, oh, well, you know, if you're watching a heat game, it's midway through the first quarter before people get to their seats. Or if you're watching a Hurricanes game, you know, same thing because people are in the parking lot tailgating. It's not that people aren't there or they don't care. We, the people are really there, especially like the South Florida natives. And I'm not a South Florida native, but I can... Uh, I can see that and I can recognize that in those others. People really honestly care. And I think that Miami gets a little bit of a bad rap for being a bad sports city because there is great weather and there are great amenities and there are all these other things to do. So if if the sports are not good, then I'm not going to waste my five hours going to this thing that's mediocre or bad. (laughs) I'm going to go over here to South Beach, which is where we're literally sitting on the sand right now looking at the ocean, which you can hear in the background. I'm going to go do that on a Saturday afternoon as opposed to watching Miami get blown out by Clemson. So, I mean, (laughs) I think that... Miami really is a good sports town, and I think that the soul of Miami, like most people are sports fans, and they care about the sports, which makes it a great sports town. Well, and I think um, just from my own personal experience, I've gotten uh, threatened by more Miami fans than anybody else. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, And I, you know, I kind of understand that that's the game, and so I kind of play to it a little bit. But um, no, I mean, there's a... The, the polite word is passion. There is a passion uh, that shows itself from time to time. Um, and I mean, hey, that's, I, I, again, like if, if you have the option, if you live on or near the beach and you got to drive an hour and a half to go to this game and you know what's going to happen, uh, I, I'd like to think it doesn't make you a bad fan to say, you know what? No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sit right here. Exactly. I mean, they're going to like people, you know, even here we can be local tourists, you know, so like, hey, instead of going out and watching this game, which I think is going to be terrible because the teams are playing bad, I'm going to go to Versailles down in Louisiana. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have some arroz con pollo and some coffee con leche, and then I'm going to go over to the beach or I'm going to play some dominoes over the domino park or nice. I'm going to do any of these kind of things. You know, you just have so many different options, but people really do care. And, you know, yeah, that passion is the, the nice way of saying the crazy insanity, anger, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that can be exhibited by Miami fans, especially the Hurricanes, for sometimes. It's mental health preservation. Yes. You have a lot of ways to preserve your, your state of mind. So Miami's general reputation, iffy sports city, tourism place. Absolutely. And they've, they've continued to lean into the tourism, obviously. Uh, I mean, it's the biggest industry down here, so like, right. why would you not? And so what, how does that, just in terms of like your day-to-day life of living here, like how much of an impact, like how does it impact your life that this is such a touristy thing and it's built to tourists, not necessarily for the locals or, you know, anything like that? How does that play out in, in kind of your day-to-day? It depends on the location, really, because the closer to the, the beach or the ocean, no matter where you are on the, the east coast of Florida, that's really going to be the touristy kind of area. Um, but, I mean, I've been living here for almost 20 years. I, know I have a lot of friends who've been living here. I have some South Florida friends who've been living here their entire lives. So though there are normal people who, you know, are just, you know, <laughs> 
doctors, lawyers, teachers, you know, I work at Target or, you know, whatever, who just kind of go about their daily routine. So it's really only an impact if you try to go into the areas that are Mar- earmarked mm-hmm. to be for the tourists or for the tourism industry. And you can um, avoid that if you want to. Right, you can avoid that exactly. I mean, like, obviously sometimes, you know, like, hey, I do want to go to South Beach. I want to go over to A1A down yeah. in Hollywood and walk the, the boardwalk and try a new restaurant and things like that. But you can plan those kind of things. But on a general everyday basis, like, it isn't a thing that really impacts me. I mean, unless I'm driving by the airport or something yeah. like that, because obviously, uh, you know, you're just going in a proximity to, you know, the tourism industry. But yeah, in general, I mean, you can kind of like live your own life and do what you do. I was just talking to you earlier. This is the first time I've put feet on the sand in probably about 18 or 19 months and I live in South Florida. Right. Like, you know, I just kind of get in my routine and like we all do that and we do our own thing. So I, I would judge you for it. I guarantee I'd be exactly the same way. Right. I mean, well, I mean, obviously I went to Miami in college and I was here on the beach uh, more than once every 18 months. That's all Spe- I'm saying. Speaking of which, PSA for prospective University of Miami students. Go. Don't listen to them. Go. And... <laughs> How much should they prep in advance for what's going to happen to their grades when they first get here? Hey, man, um, if you are not careful and and you have as much fun as I did my first semester freshman year, there can be a tangible, palpable negative impact to your academic success. Um, I told a story, or I've told a story to my friends sometimes. Long story short, I skipped my math class for five weeks solid. <laughs> my, my first semester freshman year. Uh, I think I missed four quizzes, two tests, and like 17 worksheets or something like that. So obviously that's going to be negative, but... Um, I would just say temper your expectations a little bit and like enjoy the fun that's there to be had, but also like remember if you're going to be uh, a student at the University of Miami, like your number one job is your academics. So maybe skip that frat party, maybe, which are going to be off campus because the frat parties, there's no, there's really no frat houses in Miami. There's like very few. So what they, they have like these like, kind of condo-ish suites, and what they'll do is they don't have parties in the suites. They, like, rent out a venue. So, like, hey, we're going to have the SIGET party over here on South Beach, or we're going to have the Delta Phi Epsilon, you know, formal over here in Coral Gables at this amazing hotel, and you can go and do all those things and whatnot. But I would just say, you know, maybe be prepared for a social experience that is a little bit more dynamic than you're used to, and then, like, get that out of your system a little bit early so you can focus. Stock up on easy classes early. I mean, if, if at all possible, like, of course. Just do 12 hours. Um, well, I mean, you're going to need to do the 15 so you graduate. Uh, yeah. Stay away from well, the 8 I mean, o'clocks if, if you can. But if you do 12s, then it takes you six years. You get to stay here longer. That is a fair point that I had not considered. So maybe you do the 12 to stay full time, you know, which is what you, you know, stay away from your 8 o'clocks because you're going to be out at, you know, Club Live until 5 o'clock in the morning. So 8 o'clock class is probably not going to be uh, the greatest time management that you could have. But, I mean, there's a lot of fun to be had, but you just be sure that you, uh, you govern yourself accordingly. <laughs> At the University of Missouri with no beach, just the simple existence of uh, not having to go to bed at any time except when you want to, uh, and and video games. That that alone was enough of a challenge for (laughs) basically anybody. You you add a a a pretty locale to it. I don't exactly know how anybody survives, but if you do, you have proven your a certain level of discipline to yourself. Let's go. You can. Like, that, was, that was a compliment for me, by the way, because I made it out. <laughs> no, you've proven yourself. If you can make it here. 
Los Angeles undoubtedly falls for USC football from time to time, but the Trojans are always going to be second place behind the Lakers in the city's sports pecking order, even when the Lakers are bad. Houston has the U of H, but also has the Astros and the Texans. Schools from Georgia Tech to the University of Memphis to Northwestern to Rutgers wish they had the clout to take full advantage of the big city at their disposal like Miami does. In this college football landscape, Miami is the only school with a direct path to a big city's heart. Granted, that hasn't prevented the Canes from embarking on 15 years with varying degrees of underachievement, but Mark Richt is attempting to change that. Another Midwestern transplant of sorts, Richt and his family moved to South Florida when he was a teenager. He ended up signing to play quarterback for Lou Saban at the University of Miami, and when Saban resigned after a year, Richt had a front row seat for the Schnellenberger Revolution. The Canes rose to 9-2 and two and 8th in the country in Rick's junior season and then slumped a bit to 7-4 and four when he was a senior. But as he embarked on a coaching career that would take him to long stops at Bobby Bowden's FSU and eventually Georgia, the U ignited, winning the national title in 1983 under Schnellenberger, in 1987 under Jimmy Johnson, in 1989 and 91 under Dennis Erickson, and then again in 2001 under Larry Coker. They were basically one went away from titles in 1985, 1986, 1988, 1990, 1992, 2000, and 2002 as well. Miami won with Miami kids and played it with the swagger that was in the mid-80s, especially unknown to the rest of the country. And now Rick is in his third year of attempting to turn the U back into the U, only without, you know, all the bad connotations and stuff. Indeed, I was in town to write about the Hurricanes. Among others, I spoke with Rick and Mike Rump, former Miami cornerback and current Miami cornerbacks coach. First, here's Rick. One thing that I found interesting as I talked to people the last couple of days while I was here, um, I did not expect necessarily, I, I basically asked them, you know, if, if all the Miami teams, pro and college, if they were all to compete for a national title or, or, or win a national title around the same time, which would have the most... Uh, the, the most positive effect on everybody on the city's emotional health. Like what, what is the city most connected to? And I was kind of just, you know, because it's NFL, I was kind of expecting dolphins to be the answer. Like every answer I've gotten so far has been the hurricanes, like the, the right. connection to the city there. Right. And our fan base is very much, um, city yeah. oriented. I mean, uh, we're a very, we're a very small private institution. Our, our student, uh, alumni base is not nearly what some of these other schools are mm-hmm. because we're we're not graduating ten thousand a right. year. It's more like two thousand a year, and um, and so uh, because of that, the city is a big part of what makes the university the University of Miami football program great. And uh, you know, even now when when Hard Rock is sold out and rocking and rolling, <laughs> you know, half of the fan base is is the people from the city right. who love this program, right? Yeah, and it sounded like um, there there were some steps last year in terms of you know it really started to rock last year towards the end of the year. Oh, I mean the Virginia Tech game and the uh, Notre Dame game in particular when game day came, it's one of the greatest game days of the, of the <laughs> year and uh, one of the greatest uh, crowd scenes <laughs> that uh, in college football last mm-hmm. year. The Notre Dame game was really a special time and. Yeah, I think it was good for our, our players to see it. I think it was good for our fans to see it. It was good for our recruits to see it. Um, you know, it, it's, it was a awesome, awesome night, and uh, there's more of those to come, I'm sure. Yeah, and I think it does seem like, you know, there's, there's, there can be that one night that kind of just lights it up for everything. I know I'm, I'm a Mizzou guy, um, and Mizzou fans could tell you two or three games that completely changed the just the atmosphere as a whole, and, and I'm assuming it was good to have that uh, – have that, uh, you know, everybody's starting to compare it to the Orange Bowl again. That seemed like a big thing. I think so. Um, 
and yeah, I guess the one the one thing that hasn't happened in Hard Rock that happened in the Orange Bowl, I think, was fifty eight wins in a row, right. or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we win fifty eight in a row; they'll love Hard Rock just yeah. as much as they love the Orange Bowl. But uh, uh, Hard Rock is a beautiful venue. Uh, we're gonna have a Super Bowl here not long from now. And uh, when you when you pour five hundred million dollars into a stadium, uh, you get some wonderful results. Um, what, what were the differences in approaches between? You know, obviously, Coach Bowden stayed a lot longer than Coach Schnellenberger did. Right. But what were the things that he was doing that might have been different than what Coach Bowden was doing? Coach Schnellenberger, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know, but he was the offensive coordinator for the Dolphins when they went undefeated. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> So the Miami Dolphin system was brought into college football through Coach Nullenberger at Miami. And, uh, of course, that kind of helped me in the long term of my coaching career because I learned a lot about the NFL passing game from Coach Nullenberger. Mm -hmm. The other thing about Coach is uh, he had a unique thought about uh, how to recruit the area down here. He he knew the Tri-County area of Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County was so full of great players that he considered a – uh, called those three counties the state of Miami. Right. He, he considered it a state and recruited it as if it was a state unto itself, along with the state of Florida. Um, and uh, that was very successful campaign, so to speak. And and then he was uh, he was very bold in uh, where he felt like we were going, and we were just dumb enough to believe him. <laughs> and he would always say that. Uh, we're on a collision course for a national championship, and the only variable is time. And <laughs> and he believed that, and we started believing it. Before you know it, uh, the variable of time was 1983. Yeah. His uh, his fifth season at Miami. <laughs> yeah, that seemed about five years earlier than people wanted. Uh, kind of thought. Um, and you moved down here when you were what about 13? Uh, something. Uh, Boca Raton, Florida. I was 13. 13, yeah. Uh, from from Colorado. Born in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Um, and and you know, how long did it take to feel like a local, really? Well, I don't know. I think as soon as you, when you're a kid, you move in and you just start. Yeah. Probably help playing age sports, there. and you don't think much about it. So uh, you know, I was certainly down in South Florida. From 13 to 18 until I graduated and then went to the University of Miami right after that. So uh, I was used to being – Boca Raton is only an hour north mm-hmm. of Miami, so was it wasn't that big of a deal. What's um and, and back to Coach Schnellenberger for a second. I mean, he, he was such a unique personality. What um, <laughs> What's one of your favorite anecdotes as far as uh, Coach Schnellenberger goes? Uh, well <laughs> – I, you know, he was a a guy that everybody. Uh, you know, it wasn't like he wanted to be your buddy. He was going. He mm-hmm. was definitely going to be your coach, uh, and uh, everybody respected him, and a lot of us feared him. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, he we got in one we got in trouble one time. Me and some of the guys in my in my room. Uh, my apartment. We had four guys in an apartment. I'm not going to say what we did, but <laughs> <laughs> they used to do room inspections, and then Coach would come in there and uh, come every once in a while. Coach Stellenberg would come with. Oh, jeez! And uh, he caught us having something that we shouldn't have had, <laughs> and wondered where the heck we got it, and scared the heck out of us. But uh, other than that, you know, we just respected him and really learned a lot from him. Rick plays the grandfatherly role well, and he should. He learned and honed it over 15 years of coaching under the grandfatherly Bowden, and now he's entering his 18th year as a major program head coach himself. 
Rumpf, on the other hand, is much younger. He's about my age. Please let me pretend that that's still young. And he came to the U from nearby Delray Beach, just as Miami was embarking on its turn-of-the-century run of dominance. He shared a defensive backfield with stars like Ed Reed and bounced around in the pros for six seasons before retiring to embark on his own coaching career. He was head coach at the American Heritage School for three seasons before Rick brought him back to the U in 2016. Here's Mike Rumpf. The view from from high schools and whatnot. How how has that changed uh, from what? Well, from when you were getting recruited to now, how how has the view of Miami as a whole changed? Um, <clears throat> when I came to Miami, it was coming off of probation. I came in '98, so mm-hmm. I kind of came to a similar situation as I am here now, coaching. But um, the view, uh, you know, I just felt like. You would do anything to be a hurricane when I came here. It's like, oh, no doubt. Like, they got 10 safeties because I was a safety. I'm coming to Miami. I don't care. Like, it's not about, like, you know, who's there already. Ed Reed was here and, right. you know, Al Blazer here. But I wanted to compete. And the way they recruited me was, like, kind of like, if you don't want to compete and work hard as you ever worked in your life, there's a door. Right. So it wasn't a lot of, like, bat padding and, come on, we want you. You're five-star. They are like, if you don't want to compete, don't come here. And um, I took that as a uh, someone, you know, trying to tell me I couldn't do something. Right. And I did the opposite. I came. I'm like, I'm, I'm coming. I'm, I can <laughs> compete with anybody. So the, that has changed in a sense where now you can't really – Tell the kids that you got to kind of, you know, you know, you know, baby them up and make them want to come here. But, you know, I think that has changed. But times have totally changed. We're dealing with totally different kids. These are social media kids and um, they're brought up a different way. But um, I would do anything to be a hurricane. It's just when I was a kid watching them come out the smoke and the jerseys up and the abs showing and the visors and uh, the, the colors of that orange and green and the uniform looks so good and the cleats they had. I, I used to draw pictures of Ray Lewis like <laughs> to the T with his Nike cleats on and I knew what type of socks he had. So I wanted that badly. And um, those and it's just the, the swag that they played with. It was like we don't care who you are. We're gonna we're gonna intimidate you. We're gonna dominate you. Mm-hmm. And that appealed to me as a player. And I felt I was a physical aggressive player. And I thought this would be home for me. And I, I was gonna say you you signed. Um, I mean, th- it seemed like the prog- uh, the trajectory was right, but there was still a, a, that weird five and six season. There were still sanctions pretty close by, but th- that didn't enter your mind at all. It's not just, a, not at all. Because yeah. when I came on campus. I remember in the summer there were no coaches allowed out there and it was only mm-hmm. the team. Right. I'd never seen a team full of players work that hard without <laughs> a coach being out there. Like guys are being accountable, guys calling people out, guys throwing up, guys about to fight because they won't do it right. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. Like, can, So I could only imagine when the staff came, which was one of the best staffs ever back then. I didn't know it at the time. Right. But like most of those coaches that coached me, were they end up being head coaches in the NFL or in, in college. So we're among some really good coaches, and the talent was just there. But more than anything, it was that accountability that if you're going to be a hurricane, you got to do things right. Right. So then um, you're back to the, uh, the the effect of the alumni coming back and always being in the area. Um, I mean, that definitely seems different, but uh, you know, the 30 for 30s and whatnot, uh, you know, there are clips of whoever was, you know, Michael Irvin yelling at players on the sideline when things weren't going well. Mm-hmm. So it seems like it was, it's kind of like it magnifies either way. Like when things are going well, it gets it, that makes it even better. When things aren't going well, you're reminded of a pretty – constantly when you're not holding up that standard and and um that seems to have been an issue uh like kind of snowballing uh, effect in recent years but that seemed to change a little bit last year just you know 
clearing the Florida State hurdle, uh, getting the big the Notre Dame win and all that. Um, I mean, is that a kind of a did you see something last year in that regard where people were responding better or, or kind of rising to the challenge? Oh, without a doubt. Um, <clears throat> like you say, you know, the thing that just real quick on that is um, you know, when you when you're doing well, you know, you got the support from your alumni and it's they inspire you when they come back. You know, mm-hmm. Edwin James came back and yeah, I, I never rode in the Mercedes. I rode in the Mercedes <laughs> with him, you know, and he had a condo. Someone got Reggie Wayne had a condo on South Beach, you know, and just to be in Brooklyn's condo mm-hmm. like. I came back and worked my butt off so I can try to accumulate some of those things that I mm-hmm. saw those guys coming back. But with the same thing, um, when I first the first scrimmage I had here, Tober Bain, we missed some tackles. And Tober <laughs> Bain, I, I hadn't even got off the field yet. He came pointing his finger right on my face like, you better get those boys to tackle. You know, he got that deep voice right. and that rump. You better get them boys to tighten up and tackle. I'm like, Jesus, the first scrimmage. But that's the accountability that <laughs> right. you're talking about. But as far as here and now, Notre Dame game, I saw some kids step up and be leaders that we were trying to get to be leaders but they kind of took a hold of the team then mm-hmm. and it was um and on, on the defense Kendrick Norton um Jaquan Johnson mm-hmm. and the night before the game coach Diaz has the kids get up and give their assignments about what we're going to do you know versus this and you know kind of talk briefly about what they're going to do in front of the defense but once they finished they kind of were like like kind of call the team out like hey like these dudes are calling us out like nobody does this nobody (laughs) and when you see a big 330 pounder Kendra Norton saying that you're like I kind of as a coach I'm like we're good (laughs) big boy's upset and he's getting the team going (laughs) I slept like a baby that night because Jaquan Johnson addressed the defense and just talked about what he had been through and what he expected out of everybody Mm -hmm. it was similar to the Ed Reed speech right you know so those are some of the guys that have stepped up and became those leaders in the program yeah, I, uh, a friend of mine said he he had a friend in town. It was his first Miami game, so they got front row tickets over there on the by the sideline. And um, after the, one of the turnovers, I don't remember which one, he said like Ed Reed's jumping around and like high fiving people in the stands and everything. <laughs> and, like that is not something I experienced when I was going to school. So that seems to be. That seems to be a unique thing right there. You gave me the chills, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was big. I, that's that's what I always say about um, you can tell about an environment. Like when something good happens and, the, and you see the fans celebrating, they're all kind of just doing this. Like that's fine. Mm-hmm. But then when you just see chaos and arms and <laughs> in every way, you know things are absolutely. And that was that was Notre Dame. That was completely Notre Dame. Right. Control chaos, right? Right. Or, I don't know how controlled, <laughs> but. The skies in Miami are like the humidifier in my basement. They have to be emptied once a day during the summer. Every day I was there, the mornings were stuffy, the late mornings were unbearably stuffy and humid, and then the skies emptied in a mid-afternoon downpour, giving way to a perfect evening. Cam and I had to retreat to a nearby restaurant during said downpour to finish our chat. Well, so, first of all, like I, I have this idyllic college town kind of vision of, you know, you roll out of your bed in the dorms and you, you walk to your tailgate or the, or the game or whatever. Not really an option here. No. Uh, you gotta you gotta drive what is it, about forty five minutes from campus to depending on traffic yeah, yeah. Um, but we saw last year that uh, Miami had a legit home field advantage in, in at least a few games last year um, like 
I, I mean, was it just a, a matter of for a while there after the, after leaving the Orange Bowl? Was it? It, it did seem like there was a period of you, every game was like a neutral field kind of. It had that at least on television. It had that vibe. Mm-hmm. But like, was it just the changes to the stadium? Like, what what kind of turn that around a little bit? Yeah, the changes to the stadium were really big over the course of time, bringing the seats closer uh, to the playing field. If you look back at that Florida game, what was that 2013 um, against the University of Florida? Yeah. Um, if you look back at the video from that game and just watch, the sidelines are massive. It's mm-hmm. like the foul ground over in the Coliseum for the A's. Like, you can hit a foul right. <laughs> ball, like, 300 feet, and it's still be in play. I mean, there was just so much space behind the sideline before you got to the stands. Um, and it was just a cavernous, you know, baseball stadium, really. Um, and that impacted things. So, you know, you bring the seats closer. Um, you cut down on the number of seats a little bit. Um, you add the canopy. You change kind of the interior uh, aesthetic and acoustics. And that was that's a major thing um, that affected the the home field advantage in a positive way right. for the Hurricanes. Additionally, like I spoke about earlier, the team is just better. Right. You know, and it's 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 that thing about South Florida being an event city. If you have something that is good, then the people are going to be there and they're going to be, you know, they're going to yell in full throat. They're going to be in synchronization. They're going to be, you know, just the loudest possible um, when you're doing things, when the game is going well for the team that you root for. And I think all of that coming together, changing the stadium, uh, you know, from a physical standpoint, and then also having a better team performing in that stadium that was like the perfect storm of making a home field advantage again. I was about to say, it, it's, it's funny how kicking the crap out of Notre Dame can bring a fan base together. Um, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah I mean, that was, uh, that, that was, uh, yeah, that game was so good. I'm just, I, I, I closed my <laughs> eyes and I went back. Into, yeah, I know, I know. And I, I realized like, you know, they can't see me do this on an audio podcast, but you know, yeah, like it was, it was just such a great event. And you, you know, that was when, college game day was on campus right so i did not drive down from north fort lauderdale down to the campus for game day bright and early in the morning um but i know a lot of people did and so you you watch that and you get to the tailgate and it just had this this gathering storm kind of feel Mm. it was just like you know we're gonna go out there and we're gonna blow their doors off and like to a person everybody felt like that and then the team actually made that happen and it was just, it was powerful. It was amazing. You just described word for word my 2010 experience when game day came to Columbia for the Missouri-Oklahoma game. They didn't, bl- they didn't kill OU, but they won for the first time in 11 billion years. Um, and it was, we just constantly refer to it as the best game day ever because weather was nice. Yep. The game day was there. Tailgate was extra long. I think it was homecoming. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, and I know Missouri, like, invented homecoming, so right. you guys do that really Let me big. tell you, we'll tell you all about it, too. And, I, you know, I have a couple of Missouri friends, shout out to Dieter Kurtenbach, who, who first told me that, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. But, yeah, I mean, those, those moments are, are, are fantastic, you know, so that was what it was. And one thing you were, telling, what you were saying earlier about that game or that moment was, uh, you know, Ed Reed jumping the like basically oh. jumping over into the into the stands oh. and, and high high fiving people. Uh, first of all, that's amazing. But second so of good. all, like it, it former players and their connection to this team, it it, see, it is another thing I think that makes Miami unique. But that can be bad because if you aren't playing all that well and Ed Reed's standing over there or Michael Irvin's yelling at you or whatever. Um, it definitely seems like, you know, I'm an analytics guy, so this is out of my realm, but it definitely seems like with Miami, there are certain things that, like, just mentally, 
like you know, like like disappointing Michael Irvin or losing to Florida State and then losing your next two damn games every single year. It definitely seems like that. There is that aspect. Is that just because you know it is the city's team and there's pressure, or is there something else behind that? I think it's just wanting to uphold the legacy and the standard of being a hurricane, and that's what everybody talks about. You know, all the older guys coming back. You know, you have uh, when Andre Johnson was here, and me and he and I were freshmen the same year. You know, at Miami. Oh, yeah. um, you know, he's talking about okay. You know, Santana Moss had just gotten drafted. Reggie Wayne had just gotten drafted. Daryl Jones, you know, he had just gotten drafted. Uh, you know, you have all those guys coming back and just saying, you know, this is how we do things, and not letting that legacy down. You know, that's a that's a big thing for an eighteen year old. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I know that you can get the all world recruits. You can get the Amon Richards from Wellington, who was you know Mr. Football, run up for Mr. Football in the state of Florida, first team All State, All American, all these kind of things. But then you have a Santana Moss. And Andre Johnson, who was still a thousand-yard receiver, yeah. Reggie Wayne, who was still in the league at the time, coming back and saying, "This is how we do things, and you're going to do things our way." You know, you have a, a Alan Hearns who got a fifty million dollar contract. No, oh, yeah, even as an undrafted free agent, he's coming back and saying, "Look, I didn't even get drafted, and I'm making all this money because of the way we do things as a hurricane." <laughs> you know, that's like a it's a tangible thing. You know, so um, yeah, you know, I, I think that the guys want to hold up that legacy. You have that pride of you know, uh, shout out to Nesta Silvera, the defensive tackle recruit this year with uh, his catchphrase hashtag make the crib great because you want to make the crib great you want to you know put on for your hometown you want to hold uh, hold up that legacy so yeah obviously having those guys around to show you the ropes of you know when dj williams and john vilma uh you know were linebackers they come back and say this is how we do things in a linebacker room shaq quarterman and zach mcleod and michael pinkney this is how we make those <laughs> kind of things happen it's awesome because you get that peer level uh Instruction, You know, just like it, it has to be more than just the coaches. And that's a great thing. But at the same time, like you're talking about, if you're dropping passes all the time and you have Michael Irvin there on the sideline or if you, you know, blow a coverage and give up two touchdowns at Florida State, I'm not going to call the kid's name, but every, all Hurricanes <laughs> fans knows who did that last year. Then you're like, oh, man, I got to go back to the bench. And, you know, Ed Reed is over there or Philip Buchanan, who, you know, is very vociferous with his displeasure <laughs> at times, is right there as well. I mean, it can be a daunting thing. So it's kind of the double-edged sword where it can be helpful and hurtful. Yeah, no, because, I mean, usually when we talk about winning culture, it's the upperclassmen saying, here's what we do. We know it works. And and that it just kind of piles on top of each other. But that winning culture doesn't also involve your childhood hero saying, I'm very disappointed in you. <laughs> in my piece on the U, I talk about Miami as a bellwether city of sorts, one that was dealing with a couple of major topics long before other parts of the country began to. One of them is immigration. In just 50 years, less than a single lifespan, the Latin population as a whole in Miami went from under 20% of Miami's population to about 70%. The Latin population is immense, and Cubans account for about half of it. In the 15 years after the Cuban Revolution ended in 1959, about 500,000 Cubans, mostly professionals and business class, arrived in Miami. Over the coming decades, as living conditions in Cuba got worse, even more showed up. As of 2012, there are around 1.2 million people of Cuban descent in the city and its surrounding areas. This has some obvious effects. First of all, Little Havana is both amazing and expansive. Pretty much any restaurant in the area will have the best Ropa Vieja you've ever had unless you've been to actual Havana. What's Ropa Vieja, by the way? Its literal translation is old clothes, which, if nothing else, hints at quite the home-style dish. It's basically a pile of shredded beef with sautéed peppers, rice, and, in Miami at least, plantains. 
Oh, plantains. It is one of the least pretentious meals you can have at a restaurant, and it might be my favorite dish on the planet. I had it twice in four days, and I had to stop from having it about three more times. My first stop, in fact, when I got off the plane was Versailles, a storied restaurant and an organic legend of sorts, kind of like an Arthur Bryant's in Kansas City. It is housed on a massive complex that has about three overflow parking lots, seemingly at least 100 people on duty at any point, and all the family atmosphere that you can stand. When a young employee spilled water while cleaning up an empty table near me, about eight different people came by specifically to razz him. One must his hair like a father to a son. For all I know, it was a father to a son. I was told that when anything related to Cuba happens, every local Miami reporter just heads over to Versailles to get a reaction. Irela Baguet, a first-generation Cuban-American, is the head of the Baguet Group in Miami, a strategic communication firm that focuses on business development, public infrastructure, sustainability, quote-unquote storm resilience, remember that phrase, sea level rise, and perhaps above all else, water. There's a lot of it down there. Ms. Baguet's background was, I felt, rather perfect for where I wanted to go with this piece. We covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. So the two things you're going to hear like uh, among sports fans when talking about Miami uh, are, you know, you'll hear the event city thing a lot. You'll hear the tourism thing a lot. But really, you'll hear that it is a bad sports city. That's kind of the common because basically anywhere with good weather and other options like Los Angeles, for instance, uh, you're, you're going to it's going to be a little harder to keep attention, uh, overall, but to, to your, or in your mind, what is, I guess, what is Miami's, what is the role sports play, uh, in, in Miami, in terms of the community, in terms of, uh, entertainment value, like where, do, where do sports rank among other entertainment options? Well, I think now, um, now more than ever, um, sports starting to play a, a role in entertainment. Um, as you know, Miami is a relatively new city when it comes to sports. I mean, we've been slowly getting teams, um, little by little. <laughs> yeah. And so, and we're about to get a, a soccer franchise. So, so, you know, we keep adding on. And I think that within, you know, I mean, we've had the Dolphins forever. Obviously, that was that was like our like I guess the home team we've always had. Um, and then came the Marlins, and then came or the Heat and the Marlins. And so, so you know, it's you know, it's kind of I guess we've all been kind of growing in sports in our community um, over the years. And so now I think we can call ourselves a real sports city. <laughs> And, um, so, so, you know, I guess there's a lot of competition with regards to entertainment in our city, because again, it's a tourism Mecca. Everybody wants to come to South beach. Everybody, you know, wants to come here for some for the sun and the fun. And, um, there's so much going on on any given day that it's, I I think it's very hard for for teams to, to get, you know, people in especially not winning. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's going to be a big, th- and I mean, I I, that, yeah. oh, go ahead. You know, I guess that happens pretty much everywhere, but you right. know, that strong, that strong fan base that's been there for 40, 50 years. It's, it's not here. It's not here yet. <laughs> right. And that's, you know, in college football, which is, you know, my biggest focus, um, the biggest fan bases are in Lincoln, Nebraska, where there's not a whole lot else going on. Uh, you know, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, <laughs> Um, obviously there, there's less competition for the entertainment dollar there, but going along those same lines, like what, 
what city in your mind does have kind of the biggest emotional impact, so to speak, on the city? Like when they win, it means it, it still me- resonates more than maybe the other teams. I would say here in Miami, it's definitely football because, again, we've had such a long tradition with yeah. the University of Miami, the Hurricanes, and also with the Dolphins. So that's where I see a lot of passion when they start winning. And, I mean, just you see tickets selling out. I mean, it just everybody starts, you know, getting all their, you know, uh, swaggling. And, you know, it's just, it, just, it just becomes a very community-wide, you know, cheering cheerleading approach to because you know that's that's i think football has been you know has had the longest you know i guess the longevity right um with regards to how 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 excited people get but that's not to say that you know i mean you know we've been we've we've had a couple of of uh, world series wins we've had um the heat winning championships so it's so you know i mean again those are younger, younger franchises, but right. you know, still, you know, everybody just goes crazy. <laughs> you know, when yeah. when any team, any Miami team is winning. And and um, you know, the Marlins are obviously kind of an interesting story. Number one, because they have had such a strange history in terms of exploding and then disappearing for a while, then exploding and disappearing. I guess now they've disappeared for a while, but (laughs) but in your mind, you know, this is, you're just laying everything out on paper, the demographics of Miami with the the, uh, heavy Cuban population and, and, and beyond that, uh, what over 50% of, uh, you know, of of Latin descent of some sort, It, it does feel like there's a, opportunity for baseball to make headway and, and the Marlins aside from those couple of years when they were really big, it doesn't seem like they've been able to sustain that. Is that simply a winning thing or is there, is there more to that story? Oh, I, it's just so much more um, <laughs> politics. There's a lot of drama. So there's politics. Um, I would say that the building of the, of the new stadium where they're at, um, was highly controversial here and politically, um, you know, it's on, it's on city land and there were a lot of concessions made by our, our, uh, elected leadership at the county level and at the city level. And now, you know, a lot of people feel that that was kind of like a giveaway to a private entity mm-hmm. and, you know, we're feeling a big burn after the sale of the team just because, you know, neither the city or the county got a dollar off that deal (laughs) or off that sale, Mm -hmm. being that, you know, the stadium is sitting on, you know, public land. So, you know, there's that drama. Um, (laughs) And um, and then, then, you know, the team, there's political, there's, and then there's tragedy. You know, we lost, you know, one of the best pitchers probably, you know, in the league, if not the best pitcher in the league and, you know, prior to the sale. And so, you know, there's been a lot of pain and and, and discomfort, I would say with this team. Um, now with this new, you know, ownership, it's kind of like wait and see. <laughs> right. And, you know, they're, they're getting out to the community. They're, they're, they're trying different things. They're having, you know, Cuban day, they're having, Puerto Rican day, they're having, you know, kids day, you know, they're having all kinds of days to try to bring as many folks in. 
Um, and we'll see, you know, we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, there's a, there's a lawsuit going on between the city and the, and, and the, and the team in the previous owner. So, wow, that's so, right. Forgot about that. Yeah. No, I mean, that's so, a pretty you know, visceral thing. Only in Miami. Only, only in Miami. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty clear, literal uh, way of showing a divide between a team and a community, I guess. But, um, right. We don't really debate about immigration as much as we yell about it. But in recent years, it became enough of a partisan issue, in part because the current president of the United States initiated his campaign with vile, loud noises on the topic, that we forget it really wasn't a definitively partisan issue all that long ago. It especially wasn't down in Miami, where a majority of the first wave of Cubans leaned pretty far to the right on the political spectrum. After all, they were escaping far-left Castro. And when you don't fit perfectly within a political bucket, you're probably going to double down on culture and nationality for your deriving your identity. And politics in Miami became about winning over large factions instead of parties. But going down that same road, I mean, it, it, uh, the, the Cuban population, what is it, over over one million, I think it was like 1.2 million as of a few years ago. Um, and it's hard. It's amazing to th- for me to just kind of sit back and envision a place that was basically you know, Palm Springs 60 years ago or something, something to that degree, a tourism, a little tourism town, uh, city. Slash yeah. Town. Um, and then within a 10 or 15 year period, what was it like 500,000, uh, Cubans came to Miami and moved in. And I just, the way thinking about the way that would change uh, the culture of a place, I get really excited about it because I love that. I, I love right. I grew up in a tiny Oklahoma town. I, the uh, diversity was not something that I really grew up with, but I love it uh, when, when, now that I've been exposed to it. But it, it is amazing to think about just the politics, how that changes the politics of a place. and, and the, the oh, It changes everything. It changes everything. I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm first-generation Cuban-American, so mm-hmm. my parents came in the first wave okay. in the early 60s when this literally was a very sleepy tourist yeah. town. Um <laughs> And it was it was quite a shock um, to the actual you know locals and everything else. But you know, our our uh, our parents assimilated and you know worked hard and rebuilt what they lost in Cuba. Um, most of most of them were professionals, so they just kind of you know took a few years to get back on track. And and you know, I, I would say that Miami, the community here, was very open mm-hmm. to immigration. Um, and then we've had the waves that came during Marielle, you know, mm, we've had yeah. multiple Cuban waves, <laughs> believe it or not. A lot of people don't know that, um, you know, and these, these folks are also, you know, leaving for political reasons and whatnot, you know, cause life sucks in Cuba. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, you know, it's just not a political system that just is sustainable. Right. Um, but anyway, but so that that happened in the eighties, and then I, I think you recalled during the mid nineties or so, we had this huge wave of folks just coming in raft. Right. Things were so so bad in Cuba that people were just like you know throwing themselves into the ocean and just make trying to make their way over here. And so that's the story of the Cuban immigration. But on top of the Cuban immigration, we have had Nicaraguan waves. We've had Colombians, Venezuelans. As, as you know, Venezuela has a horrible political problem yeah. right now and you know very similar to the cuban situation and so that's happened that happened so we have a huge venezuelan population here 
um, in the, the western part of Dade County and, um, and Haitians as well. So it's so diverse here. And, and Eastern Europeans in the northern part of the, of the county, I mean, we're a quite large county. We're close to, we're, o- we're over 2.5 million people, okay? And, grow- and growing. Right. So, yeah. So, so, yeah. So, so I, I, you know, we can fill up stadiums where we want to. It was, it's kind of like all the good and all the bad of such a thing that, you know, I, I read, you know, it was the, what the first bilingual, bilingual public school program was in Miami. And then about 15 years later, there was the first English only referendum uh, in Miami. <laughs> and I, my yeah, question yeah. is, just through the, through the years, how do you avoid just total, you know, balkanization basically like this group versus this group versus this group instead of like, how do you make a city uh, out of so many different groups that came at specific times uh, in specific ways? I mean, I don't know. I think it's, it's Miami is a very unique place. And I think that's why we have so much um, Hispanic immigration because people feel okay coming here and they know that we'll help each other out and right. that the language is not language is not going to be a huge barrier. Um, you know, so it, it'll, it, and, and, you know, mind you, there's this, you know, this concept that you need, a, you need a passport to get to Miami, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, language has never been an issue here. I mean, we had, you know, we had that, you know, political issue with, with the referendum, but that, 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 that doesn't, that never survives anywhere. We're, right, we're all right. Americans. We all proud Americans. We just happen to have roots in other places. It's like everybody who came here. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and it was interesting to me too, to think back, you know, now our, the immigration debate has become a very blue versus red thing, like everything else. It's, you know, you, you know, what, you get your talking points based on your political leanings, but, uh, mm-hmm. but with, with the Cuban uh, immigration specifically, the, the older Cubans, that first generation, they were very conservative. Um, and so that's kind of, I remember reading Manny Diaz uh, Sr.'s book a, a while back. He was, you know, his relatives would call him Little Fidel because he was, uh, you know, yeah. he, he leaned Because he was a Democrat. Right. <laughs> and um, so that's, that makes it really interesting to me just because it is different. I mean, you've got people in, from, from different yeah. sides and different, uh, you know, that, what, what made that different or how did that, I guess, play out in terms of, you know, having a very conservative influence, well, in the immigration debate in Miami? Well, I, I don't know. I think it's generational. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's still, it's a, still a very bizarre thing for me to even try to, you know, wrap my head around because, <laughs> you know, again, my parents, you know, uh, you know, they would be, they would, they would probably be more towards the, you know, Republican GOP mind mm-hmm. thought. Um, and my, I'm a Republican too, but I'm kind of very moderate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so, so I have debates with, you know, my dad. Uh, on some issues and that we don't agree with. And it's just because I grew up here and he grew up elsewhere, but he, he was forced to come to another country. And so I think there's, you know, there's generate different generations are always going to look at things differently, you know, and they're going to always become more conservative. I mean, you know, you know, when, when I was younger, I did a lot of things that I couldn't do today. I didn't <laughs> right. conceive of my child doing today either. So, you know, it's just, you know, we just, I guess we get more square as we get older. I don't right. Know. Yeah. And then that's always, we, we think of like the younger generation leans this way and then the older generation. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we think that's going to stay and it never stays. It always kind of shifts uh, in, a, in a certain yeah. way, age and experience, I guess. But you know what, but, but I got to tell you something. I think that, where, you know, just sports 
is, is something that I think brings everyone together, yeah. you know? And, you know, it just, it's just very interesting to me because you can, you can have people rooting for the same thing, you know, and really, you know, the team, you know, really rooting together and it does, you know, race and ethnicity and nothing, none of that matters. Age doesn't, none of that matters. We, we can all kind of rally around one thing. So I don't know. Yeah, I talked um, to. There's uh, also controversy. There's also controversy in, in in right now political controversy. I think right. we're just living in a very bizarre bizarre time. <laughs> in, yeah, in, no. in, in general. I, I'd like to think sports can still play a role. I, I talked to a, a player from the University of Miami in the 80s, um, mm-hmm. a defensive end from the, he played in the late 80s, and he said that um, you know for, that was such a city team. Obviously, the university is pretty small, uh, but you know when they played mm-hmm. somebody big, the, the Orange Bowl was full, and and a lot of it he said you know, because of the swagger they had in the mid to late eighties and because uh, they were so different and so brash and everything, you know, the rest of the country hated the university of Miami. It just like, that was, I I grew up close to the university of Oklahoma. Like they hated Miami partially because they lost to Miami every single time they played them. But Uh he he said that when you're on the inside and the entire rest of the country hates your team, the city is, is it will rally around it. It becomes part of the city. Oh, yeah. You can't say anything bad about us. Only we can say th- those things. And, and it becomes like a family. That's thing. right. And, and so that was That's really right. We got their back. Right. We exactly. got their back. Oh, well, for sure. For <laughs> sure. There's another aspect in which you could say that Miami is a bellwether city, of course. Miami's role in the general climate change conversation is as a forced sacrifice of sorts. If, you're, if we're talking about football and player safety, someone might almost casually say something to the effect of, and football is probably not even going to be around in 25 years or something like that. Well, it's probably not true, but it makes the point. And in climate change conversations, it's, and Miami's probably going to be underwater in 25 years. Visit it while you can and whatnot. It is the year of our Lord 2018, and we've still got senators bringing snowballs into congressional chambers to prove that global warming is a fraud. Our country's president is a proud member of the more like global cooling, am I right, chorus. It's great chum for the base. In Miami, though, there is no time to waste when it comes to debating climate change's existence. Miami is already too busy dealing with it. Along with places like Mumbai, Ho Chi Minh City, Hong Kong, even New York, London, or Tokyo... Studies have shown that Miami is indeed perhaps the biggest risk when it comes to sea level rise and flooding. There are two aspects to the climate change conversation in general, trying to halt it and trying to live with it. The former is more important, and it's also nearly impossible in this country, maddeningly so. And because of that, we're going to get much more familiar with the latter. We're going to have to learn how better to cope with weather patterns that are only going to get crueler. When it comes to the latter, at least, living and coping, Ms. Begay is reasonably optimistic. She and Miami don't really have a choice in the matter. So, uh, you know, you, you've, you said a couple times, I think, but you know, Miami is a very young city. How, how does that, you know, what, what makes Miami different just in terms of, you know, the decision-making process and, and everything because it is so young and because it's so, you know, half a century of having a lot of people, basically, uh, instead of being a, a tourist kind of place. I read uh, John Stack, uh, an FIU professor, wrote about, um, he was written, well, he's written a lot about it, and he had a quote that basically said, like, Miami's preoccupation with tourism, even after its population grew, kind of had a bunch of negative consequences for, you know, economic development, community development uh, and everything. And, you know, pleasure over infrastructure almost, but what, to your mind, what makes Miami being a young city, how does that play out? What makes uh, a, what has that done good or bad for Miami overall? Well, you know, I mean, again, we've, we've learned 
lessons along the way. So, <laughs> you know, we've, we've been, we were hit with a, you know, I mean, okay. So, you know, when we're talking about Miami and why every, everybody wants to live here now, but nobody wanted to live here in the, you know, late 1800s and early 1900s, you know, it was very hot very wet and full of mosquitoes. <laughs> and so, so it's not, not the, the most pleasant place, you know, to live um, until obviously, you know, railroads came and air conditioning was invented and, you know, um, it, it, the tourism was developed and, and, and so forth. So fast forward, um, I would say just from my perspective, learning lessons, we were hit with a really bad hurricane in the, in the early nineties mm-hmm. and we, we realized that we needed to, you know, enhance and be, you know, become stronger and more resilient. And we probably, we're probably one of, we probably have one of the strongest building codes in the nation. It's not, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. probably in the nation with regards to wind storm um, impacts. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we also have been very, uh, blessed with a, an abundant ecosystem that provides us with water. And um, we have two national parks mm-hmm. that, you know, we can enjoy. And it's all, it, it, you know, here, I, I always say in Miami and or East South Florida, the environment is the economy. Right. And we've been able to really, we've been able to really maximize and leverage the environment. But now we've, we've gone a little too far. <laughs> and we re- we've recognized, you know, the past, I would say past, you know, 20 years, we've recognized that we need to start investing in our infrastructure and we need to start looking at um, how we can, you know, preserve and sustain our ecosystem and our environment for future generations. And now with the threat of sea level rise and, you know, Miami is not just the only ground zero for sea level rise. Okay. <laughs> We're a coastal, any coastal city, you know, to your listeners, any coastal city around the world is has a threat of sea level rise. Okay, mm-hmm. um, we just, you know, we just get a lot of hurricanes, <laughs> and so therefore, therefore, we have to again invest in infrastructure. And you know, you know, when we do that and we recognize that we need to work on something, we do it, and we we're good at that, and we're good at raising money to do things. We're good at you know, uh, getting our community around something and supporting um, initiatives like that. And so, you know, Everglades Restoration is a great example. Um, it's a, the state government and the federal government working together. You know, it's not, it does, it's not always a happy marriage, but, you know, <laughs> we're moving things forward. Um, they could be quicker. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, we're engaged in a lot of work towards protecting ourselves and also helping sustain our future future sustainability for for mm-hmm. our region so th- there's a lot going on um and so so you know and again lessons learned we just went through irma last year right. hurricane irma um that woke everybody up because we really had with in our the entire state felt it i mean it just like it was the craziest storm ever because it supposed to hit the east coast and it went around the west coast and then it's up north Right. So it was just like no one, no, no one in Florida did not, you know, was left untouched. And so it woke everybody up. You know, even some climate deniers, <laughs> that I call them, are now actually talking about, hey, you know, maybe we need to start looking at how to prevent flooding and storm surge. And, you know, so we, so because we were able to, you know, 
actually, um, you know, take those as opportunities. Mm -hmm. And all these projects are economic development engines, you know, they create jobs, Mm -hmm. you know, um, even, even working on, on, you know, like our energy, even renewable energy, those are, those are jobs, solar jobs. I mean, these are future, these are jobs of the future. They're already here now. And so, so, yeah, so we're we're pretty. I think we're pretty ahead of the game. Even though a lot of the press loves to, you know, <laughs> rain on our parade, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> if you bring up, well, if you bring up Miami just casually, uh, I mean, in a non-sports way, it's either gonna whoever you're talking to outside of Miami is either their brain's either gonna go straight to South Beach or it's gonna go straight mm-hmm. to the idea of you know, hey, Miami's gonna be underwater in 20 years. Uh, you know, that's that's what everybody's right. saying. Right. Um, but, but, but you know, we, we've had we've had bad we've had bad you know bad reputations in the past too. Like you know, right. during the 80s we had we were oh drug drug dealers and right. wars and drug wars down in Miami. So you know, I mean, it's like we we all all that we can do, and this is you know my community. All we can do is continue to work and not you know and kind of ignore you know the doom and gloom you know press that we get and just keep showing that we're doing stuff. And I got to tell you, with all that bad press that we've gotten about, oh, Miami underwater and yeah. all of that, people are still, com- people are still coming here. I know. <laughs> you know, because we're, we're, not, we're not flooding, you know? So yeah. if, since we already know what's going to happen, don't you think we'd be working on stuff and, 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 and you know, make, making sure that we're able to, to live here? Um, and, and maybe there are parts that were parts of our community that, that'll look differently. But just like they look differently back in the 30s and 20s, you know, you know, infrastructure evolves, technology evolves, innovation evolves. And, mm-hmm. and you know, we're living at a time where, every, you know, you got to get a, cell, a, a new iPhone every six months. <laughs> so te- technology, is, technology I, I have a lot of faith that technology, innovation and solutions will come. A lot of these solutions to flooding and our problems will mm-hmm. come from there, too, from those sectors. There's a gentrification of sorts with climate change that is coming to fruition in Miami, along with basically all of those other cities I mentioned earlier. Over time, real estate with higher elevation has skyrocketed in price and will continue to do so, while lower-lying areas, which are already dealing with semi-steady flooding issues in the Miami area, have become the only areas those of lesser means can afford. Their options are either coping or leaving. How that might redefine Miami in the coming years will be interesting. The city probably won't be literally underwater in 20 years, but its geography and its makeup will change quite a bit. It's a damn shame. Uh, I'm easy, and I like just about every city I visit, but Miami is a really fun place to get to know. The food scene is as good as advertised, as are the beaches. The city is every bit as married to the U as you've been led to believe. And if you're into exploring different cultures, well... Let's just say four days in town wasn't nearly enough to scratch the surface. Podcast Ain't Played Nobody will be back with two normally scheduled episodes next week. Take care, guys.